Well, good evening, Chi Alpha. Um, so great to be here tonight and to have this opportunity to preach to you. Uh, my name is Hunter Johnson, and I am one of the... Hey, thanks. Uh, in case you didn't know, or in case I forgot. Um, and it's my pleasure to speak to you tonight. I'm one of the campus pastors here. And um, you may have noticed, if you saw me last week, the mullet is gone. Right? I know. Shocker. Um, as many of you dressed up for Halloween last Tuesday, I had the basketball outfit that was kind of a callback to a YouTube video I made in college, but that's not important for the sake of time tonight. It was called Supreme Court, if you decide to look it up. Um, and so I shaved that mullet, it's gone. My core group and I are doing No Shave November together, so if you see like a bunch of scruggly, you know, just uh, scruffy individuals over there, just... Uh, Bear with us over the next few weeks. Um, but as I was putting together like the costume and stuff last week, and as like every Halloween, I tend to spend some time reflecting on things that I dressed up in as the past. Um, right? Anyone else trick or treat, trunk or treat when you grew up? Like, okay, yeah, three of you, great. I would have thought of been more, but um, my family loved Halloween, and so like we would dress up and go everywhere and do all the things. Um, and so I just thought for tonight's message, um, we'd start it off with just some lighthearted fun and revisit a few things that I dressed up as over the years. Um, and so the first, well not the first, this is for my second Halloween, but if you would cue the photo here, boom, look at that. Wow. Right? No, that's the, that is exactly what I said when I saw this. For one, like I'm a Ravens fan. My core group and I, a lot of us went to the Ravens game this past week. That was awesome. Um, sorry, any Seahawks fans. But, and my dad is a Dolphins fan. Like he's a Marino guy. So I had no idea why I was wearing a Troy Aikman shirt, a Dallas shirt. Um, and that's my twin sister, by the way, Peyton. She's uh, five minutes younger than I am. I don't really know what she was, and that's not important for the conversation. Oh, cheerleader, ah, yeah. Without the pom-poms, it was hard to say, but you know. Shows you how observant I am. Uh, anyways, if you uh, click to the next photo, you can see that I was not very happy about being a Cowboys fan. Um, there's the pom-pom. But if, if you see the tears rolling down my cheek, like I, I had a lot in common with Cowboys fans after most Sundays, so. Just thought I'd throw a jab while we were here. Making enemies already. Um, right, don't show the next photo yet. Uh, there's some anticipation for that. Um, so obviously, like I was young, I didn't decide to dress up as this. I was not even two yet here. But um, one of the first costumes I know that I decided to dress up as, and I don't really remember how this happened. I think we were driving in the car, and my mom was asking my sister and I, what do you guys want to dress up for Halloween? It's like a few weeks away. And at that moment, we were driving through Roanoke, and there it was, the Red Lobster sign. And for some reason in like my four-year-old mind, uh, I said, that's it. I want to be the Red Lobster for Halloween. So you can show, boom, there it is, the Red Lobster. Um, behold, my sister was Dorothy, if you can not tell. I can at least observe that. Um, and that's my cousin dressed up as a clown. Not much has changed with him. But uh, 
The cool thing about the Red Lobster outfit is that my mom made it herself. Like, she grabbed all the materials, did all the sewing, like the little antennae up there and the headband. It was, it was great. Um, it was what a time to be alive. Um, and then for the third and final one, this was like by far one of my favorite costumes I ever had. Boom, right there. Stitch. Right, like this was like a quality costume. It had like all the extra arms and everything. Like my head was inside his mouth. It was wild. Um, and, and for me, like Stitch was so much more than just like a costume. Like growing up, like Stitch was him to me. Like he was, he was that guy, right? Like when the movie came out, it was like, oh man, like this dude is the best. He's blue, which was like my favorite color. He's cool, he's crazy. Um, and like I had like all the stitches, not like the medical devices, but like I had all the plushes, I had a stitch comforter, like you name it, I probably had a stitch version of that. Um, when my family and I went to Disney World, like the number one priority other than riding Splash Mountain was meeting Stitch and getting his autograph, which I didn't even know you could get an autograph from Stitch, but we did and it was awesome. But there was a time where this obsession with Stitch went a little too far. Um, in, in the good land of Roanoke, Virginia, um, in Valley View Mall, there once was a Disney store, which was absolutely crazy, right? Like maybe your malls had Disney stores back in the day. Don't know if any do today. If you do, let me know and I'll go. But, um, Anyways, in the Roanoke Mall, which we'd go to all the time, there was a Disney store and that was like a must. We would go in like once, if not twice, like each and every time we'd go. And I remember this one time, there was a display full of like all these plush stitch toys and, and figures and whatnot. And I already had probably like three or four other like stitch variations, but I just remember like this one was different. Like I had to have this one. And I think I had visited a few times and I realized like Christmas was far away. My birthday had already passed. Like what do you do? So I, I, I grabbed one <laughs> and as my mom and sister left the store and I ran to catch up, I just kind of held it behind my back and at my side. And like I, I, I'm, I know, right? This is moment of vulnerability right here. And as we get through the theft detectors, I'm like, surely this is where it all, like, I get caught and I get exposed, it's over. Nope. <laughs> we made it. So we're out of the store, no alarms, and honestly, I made it a pretty fair way through the mall before my mom eventually noticed what was behind my back. And, uh, you know, she called me out and she's like, I know I didn't buy that from you and you don't have any money, so <laughs> you stole that. Uh, and of course, like I lied to try and cover it up. And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't mean to. Well, of course I meant to. Like, he didn't reach out for me. Um, and so, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where a desire for something was so strong that it clouded your judgment and led you to do something you knew wasn't right? Like, obviously, even at that age, I knew stealing was not right. But that desire that I had for Stitch was so strong that it didn't matter what I knew to be right. I did it anyways. Maybe you've had a subtle desire for something that left unchecked, continued to grow, and led you to do something you never thought you'd end up doing. 
Maybe it wasn't a desire for an object. Maybe it was a desire for a person that led you to make choices you wish you could take back. Maybe that runaway desire hurt only you in some way. Or maybe that desire led not to only hurting yourself, but hurting others in your life as well. Tonight, as we get back into our series on the Ten Commandments, we're not talking about stealing or coveting or lying, even though all three of those commandments were broken in that story. Um, We'll be talking about those things in the weeks ahead, but the commandment we'll be looking at tonight is a little bit different from those and yet very similar to. And what these, these things have in common, coveting, stealing, and adultery, which tonight's uh, commandment addresses, all have in common is that they occur when our uncontrolled and selfish desires end up controlling us. And so we come to the seventh commandment tonight. If you're not already there, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20 with me. Been camping out there all semester. Bye, Kevin. So the seventh commandment says, seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. So the next question that arises is, what is adultery? Right? Like we may hear this word all the time. We may hardly hear this word. It's not a very common word, but there can be a lot of confusion over the meaning and definition of what adultery is. So the definition we'll be working with tonight is this. Adultery is voluntary sex between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. That's adultery defined in its broadest sense. And and there could be cases of adultery where where both individuals are married to other people or only one of them is married. Like All these different examples would be considered adultery, where both people would be guilty. And what's fascinating is that in the ancient Near East, which includes Israel, right, who this commandment was addressed to. Almost every culture, even outside of Israel, in the ancient Near East, had a similar punishment for adultery. And that punishment was death. Why was the penalty so severe for this? Well, as we saw a couple weeks ago with murder, the previous commandment we talked about, Adultery also affects the community in a way that breaks apart family units. The family unit in the ancient Near East was the center of society, and marriage was the center of each family unit. And to put it simply, adultery breaks this. Not only was marriage the center of the family unit and a critical part of society, but marriage was a sacred covenant, and it also served as a picture of God's covenant with his people. Right Throughout Scripture, we see God relating to his people in many different ways, and, and we see lots of use of familial language. Right? Some examples of this, like God is referred to as a heavenly father, that we are his children, his sons and daughters. In other places, we see that the church is considered the bride and Christ is considered the bridegroom, right? And so scripture is clear that family relationships are extremely important to God and they offer us a way to reflect who God is. 
And so marriage was one crucial way in which the people of God could reflect their covenant relationship with God by entering into covenant with one another. And so we see that the penalty for adultery was so severe because its implications were serious. Adultery ruptured family units, it would be detrimental to society, and it would defy God's plans for his people in marriage and in relationships. And in a similar vein to the last time we were in this series, I think there's sometimes a a collective sigh in the room because I doubt that anyone here tonight has committed adultery. Uh, right? Like, I I doubt there is anyone here who has done that. And so, uh, before you decide to check out uh, right now, because in your heart you say, well, this doesn't apply to me, let me give you two good reasons why you should just hold on a little bit longer and follow along. The first reason would be that because some of us in this room have been impacted by adultery, not as people who have committed it, but as sons and daughters whose parents may have been unfaithful to each other. Right? The statistics, as you may be familiar with, are that half of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. That is scary. And one of the leading causes of divorces in the U.S. is unfaithfulness in marriage. And so if it is not you that has been impacted by this directly, then it is very likely that you have close friends who have been affected by adultery indirectly. And so as a community that seeks deep and meaningful friendships with each other, um, that alone should be one reason for us to lean into tonight's message as we seek to care for one another. And the second reason that we shouldn't check out just quite yet is that Jesus actually has something important to say about the subject at hand. And in fact, just like he did with the previous commandment where he took murder and broadened it to include hate and any ill feelings we had towards others, he's going to broaden this commandment as well uh, to a point that we can all very much relate to. So Jesus is ready for our collective sigh or our belief that this doesn't apply to us. And this is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, um, starting in verse 27. I believe the verses are there behind me, if you can follow along. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman or man lustfully has already committed adultery with her or him in their heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, you can also use the word sin there, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So abruptly, that which seemed far off, the notion of adultery, Jesus pulls right into our present. He says, If you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. And yet we we still might be like, Hunter, come on, like that's that's not me you're talking to, that's not me you're talking about, so I I get that and and let's let's just do a brief exercise, okay? Please do not answer (laughs) these questions out loud, but just process them with me. First question is this Have you walked past a person on campus? I'm going to switch microphones real quick because this one keeps cutting out. 
All right, let's try that. Have you walked past a person on campus? Maybe you've been at UREC or in class and your glance became a gaze. Maybe you saw someone on TV or in a movie you were watching that really captured your attention and your thoughts. Did you then begin to sexually think about that person? Did you begin to uh, imagine physically being with that person? Did you begin to physically act out being with that person? If you can answer yes or relate to any of these things, then maybe this word is for you tonight. Because I think if we're honest, there's three groups of people in this room tonight. The first is there are those who are tempted in the area of lust, but it feels like it's just not that big of a deal. The second is there are those who have wandered down the path of lust and feel entrapped by it. And the third are those who have been wounded by lust and feel deeply ashamed. And I just want to give a quick disclaimer that um, as we continue in this message, what I want you to know is that the goal here tonight is, is not to condemn or to convict anyone. Right? God is gracious and he is kind. And one thing that I love about God is that he recognizes the things that we struggle with, the things that rob us of our peace and our joy and the fullness of life that he calls us to live. God sees those things and desires to meet us with his grace, with his mercy, with his forgiveness, and with freedom. And so if, if you feel convicted or, or moved tonight, may it not be by my words, but by the Spirit of God working through his word and in our hearts, okay? And the goal of this message is, is to really help us consider something that we in our society often don't take seriously enough. And I want to unpack the severity of it to help us understand its effects upon us and to talk about the healing that we can find in Jesus concerning the topic of lust. So let's reread Jesus' words one more time on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or man lustfully has already committed adultery with her or him in their heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So let's talk about what Jesus is doing here in this text, in this passage. He begins by taking the word that we looked at in Exodus, do not commit adultery, and he affirms that it still stands true. He doesn't negate it or deny it in any way. However, in a similar manner to what he did when we talked about the commandment, do not murder, he seems to broaden it and, and gives us like this impossible standard to follow, right? If you even look at someone longingly and imagine being with them sexually, you've committed adultery, he says. And now Jesus is not denying that it is worse to commit the act of adultery than it is to lust. He's not saying that that isn't worse. Um, however, Jesus is stressing where the real problem and solution lie. That the problem of adultery finds its roots in lust. And so to understand how we can live out the words of Jesus, we need to begin uh, by understanding what lust means in this context. 
And first, I just want to say that, please note, it doesn't say that finding someone physically attractive is wrong. That finding someone physically attractive is not lust. Right? That is a natural part of like how we are created to find people to be. And so that is not lust. You're not committing adultery if you find someone attractive. Whew. Um, right? There's a particular word used in this context. The word for lust has at its root the words of longing for, desiring, but also coveting. It's essentially a desire that has run away from us. It's an unrestrained impulse, which in dwelling upon it gives birth to a desire to possess and to use for selfish gain. So it's important to distinguish how do we separate and distinguish coveting from lust, right? You're gonna hear about coveting in the weeks to come. Um, and so how do we distinguish these two? Well, in coveting, the object of our runaway and selfish desire is material. It's, it's simply a thing that we desire to possess or have. In my case, it was stitch. In lust, the object of our runaway or selfish desire is a person. We desire to have or to possess a person, and the desire is to have them sexually. So a question that we may like be wondering is, is why is the internal world, like our, our thoughts and our feelings and emotions, why is that like so significant if we can just keep the letter of the law? Or perhaps a better way to ask this question is, is lust bad if it only stays in my mind and I don't act on it? That would be a great question. Let me give you an example. All right, how many of you have seen those videos where um, there's a child that's it's a part of an experiment and they put a child into a room and they put like a piece of candy or a marshmallow on the table and they say, hey, don't eat this candy. Don't touch this marshmallow. If you make it like the next whatever amount of time, 10, 15 minutes, maybe it's even five minutes. I don't know. It's normally a short period of time. You can have two, but just don't touch that. Don't eat that. Right. Um, and then the parent leaves the room and then you see like just the kind of the excruciating uh, pain that the child goes through, not physically, right? But like as they have this desire for this thing, it becomes so strong. And they're like playing with the candy, but not eating it. And they're like touching it and putting it back, right? And they usually don't eat the candy, but honestly, like it's killing them on the inside, right? Like they're obsessing over it, they're wanting it. And most of them don't actually do it, at least for the moment. Well, this funny analogy mirrors our hearts and why Jesus chooses to speak about this topic. There's a pastor who is also a licensed counselor, and he teaches a seminar titled, How to Have an Affair. And his main point is this, it doesn't just happen. That which seems spontaneous in the moment has actually been fermenting in the heart of the individual or the individuals for quite some time. Jesus knew that the people of God were trying in their own strength and effort to live by the law. However, the sexual appetite of lust seems stronger than many other things we deal with. So he addresses it here in the Sermon on the Mount. And you see, Jesus knew that our ability um, for self-restraint in this area of our lives um, is temporary. That ultimately what was growing on the inside would, would ultimately become a behavior that would involve others outwardly, whether in reality or in fantasy. Because at the heart of lust is the fact that it directly involves others. 
It's not only about us. Another thing that's important to understand is where does lust come from? Right? When we considered murder uh, and anger this past, the last time we were in this series, um, we talked about how it was the heart that was the source of these things. And tonight, it's important to know that the heart conceives lust, but it's the eyes that are the gateway. It's the eyes that are the gateway to lust. We can see this in the beginning, right? In the garden with, with Adam and, and Eve, and they looked at the fruit, right? It looked good, it said. It looked pleasing to the eye, and so they consumed it with their eyes far before they ever touched it with their lips. In other places in the New Testament, John speaks many times about the lust of the eyes. Even Jesus himself says that the eyes are a lamp to our soul. That is, that our eyes light the way and our soul follows. So our eyes can either be lusting as we walk across campus, as we sit in the dining hall or our residence, or go out on the weekends. But they can also be lusting behind closed doors online feeding themselves through images and videos and TV shows, whether explicitly pornographic or not. And we face a problem, and that problem is this, that we can't just switch off the gateway, right? Like we can't just walk around with our eyes closed or blindfolded. We're not to take Jesus's advice to gouge our eyes out literally. Um, Jesus's words weren't meant to be taken literally here, but they were meant to be taken seriously. And if Jesus takes our sin seriously, then we must take our sin seriously too. Jesus' words show that we may need to make drastic changes in our lives in attacking lust. And in just a few moments, I'll speak a little bit as to what that could look like practically, what might steps look like that we could take. But it's important to reiterate one more time just why lust must be taken so seriously. Right? Like, what is the impact of lust? Is it really that bad? What is the problem with it? Um, author Jen Wilkin has a lot of good quotes about this in one of her books on the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to quote from her a couple times tonight. But this is what she says regarding lust. She says, Lust itself is an act of contempt, reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. If the Sixth Commandment, the one against murder, prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. You see, lust reduces people to commodities, things to be consumed. It objectifies and degrades. We have to depersonalize them in order to allow lust to fulfill its desires in us. Right? Like the difference between lust and love is like astronomical, right? Both of these things feel good, but, but what do I mean by that? Like, for instance, consider your family, consider your friends, those that you love. We treasure them and protect them as image bearers of God. But with lust, we fail to view people as bearers of God's image and instead view them as objects for our own pleasure. Right, and one of the most obvious examples of this today, as we are all aware, is that the easy access to pornography is the greatest source of gratifying our lust. And, and there's a lot of statistics that speak to the impact that this has had on many people. Right? Like, like in cases of males, like erectile dysfunction is increasing significantly, and this is related to lust and watching these things. 
Um, there's an increase in physical abuse that is happening in sexually um, involved relationships as an indicator of what people are seeing in videos and movies. And the statistics are only the surface. We honestly need to face what's going on beneath the surface. And lust is many things, right? And in pornography, it establishes a foothold because it promises the gratification of desire fulfilled without either vulnerability or commitment. And God's design for sex was to be had in a committed, loyal, and exclusive relationship that we know as marriage, where two people can be vulnerable and intimate with one another and only each other in this way. But in watching pornography, one sidesteps this boundary where there is no vulnerability, there is no true intimacy, and it becomes all about one's own pleasure. And in fact, it goes even further than this. It abandons any pretense of consensual union and celebrates the degrading of another person. Right? The viewer has to try and convince themselves that this person they are viewing desires or even wants to be consumed. And so can we, can we see tonight that, that lust isn't harmless? That, that through, for example, vehicles like pornography and hookup culture and others, that lust pulls others in. It isn't just about us. It's about objecting and degrading, objectifying and degrading those around us. That we fail to see them as people who uh, bear the image of God. So what are we to do with these seemingly impossible words of Jesus? Right? If, if lust is always before us, what can we do? We know that we can't just switch off our eyes, and Jesus teaches us about lust because he wants us to know that it's degrading and discounts the humanity of those around us. Yet what he seems to ask of us seems impossible. How can we live with such a pure heart such a pure mind. We have to realize, first of all, that we simply cannot manage our lust. We must slay it. The accuser, the enemy of our souls, has convinced us for far too long that lust is simply something to be managed and, and not something that we can actually slay. And this is not true. And it can only be slayed when we realize what it represents about our own hearts. You see, what lust actually shows is that we are living a life of disordered love. As we've said before, right, like we are, are created by God as people to give our affections to something, to someone. And yet, in our disordered lives, we tend to put our affections on fallen or earthly things, and lust is the gateway to the fallen affection. And the reason that we often lust is because we feel like it's accomplishing something for us, right? So let's talk about that for a moment. Like, what does lust do for us? Well, for one, it gives us a sense of, of being in control. Or it seems to comfort us, and we have this sense of satisfaction or of having power over something or someone. And yet, these are just illusions. These illusions are the results of disordered love of placing our affections upon the wrong things. And they're all fleeting and temporary and can never be satisfied. Lust will never be satisfied. We can see that in the narratives concerning the impact of pornography, right? There are countless individuals who are coming forth and saying that 
uh, the, the once seemingly innocent videos or the things that weren't as extreme that used to pleasure them now no longer get the job done. And as they continue to lust, as they continue to feed their addiction, it requires them to view even more extreme things in order to maintain that dopamine hit. Right? The hookup culture around us, as many people go from one person to another, is also evidence that lust will not be satisfied. We're trying to find our comfort, our satisfaction in lust, but we can't. And so we keep feeding it, hoping that at some point we will, but it can't and won't be satisfied. So the first thing we must realize tonight is that we cannot try to manage our lust. We will fail again and again and again. Or to put it another way is we cannot just make this a moral quest. That's... That enough is, is not going to work, right? Uh, like we cannot will this within ourselves. Knowing what is wrong is not enough to keep us from doing wrong, right? I knew stealing Stitch was totally not cool and I still did it anyways, right? Like how often do we in moments of weakness still do the wrong things? So knowing lust is wrong is not enough to keep us from doing it. We're not strong enough to change our own hearts or our minds. We're not able to do this on our own. So what then is our hope? What is the answer to our disordered love? The gospel is the only answer. When Jesus gave these words in Matthew 5, they seem impossible, right? Like there's no way we can live with such a pure heart. And that's the good news is that without Jesus, we can't. We can't manage our lust. That implies effort in our own strength and ability. And that's not what Jesus is asking Right? Jesus is hoping that we quickly realize that the end point of us trying to do something about it in our own strength is futile. Jesus wants us to fall on him, to depend on him, to seek him and ask him to do it for us and with us. We need the supernatural to conquer the natural. It is the only way. And as I mentioned earlier, there may be some drastic and helpful changes that we can make in our lives in order to um, manage our lusts or our access to it, right? I mean, there are, are programs like Covenant Eyes and other filters that block explicit websites, and those things can be really helpful. Um, there's also like habitual things we do that we could stop, such as not taking our phone to the bathroom, or instead of having it alone at night in our rooms, you can leave it in the living room or in a place where it's out of reach. Um, maybe it's getting a dumb phone or deleting Tinder or w whatever it is. Like There are all sorts of practical ways that may be helpful in managing lust. But in order to slay it, as Jesus calls us to, we must combine the practical with the supernatural. So what is our response to this tonight, Chi Alpha? Again, Jen Wilkins says the following. She says, but with all sin, our offending eyes and hands and feet and ears and lips and tongues and noses serve at the pleasure of our hearts. What our hearts delight to do, our members rush to accomplish. And as we confess and repent, God puts to death our disordered desires and gives us rightly ordered ones. And our eyes and hands and feet and ears and lips and tongues and noses begin to serve at the pleasure of the heart that delights in him. 
And so our way to slay lust centers upon the following. It begins with confession. It begins with confessing our lust and bringing it before a holy God and being real with him. Acknowledging that we are guilty, acknowledging that we need his help and laying everything bare before him. So it begins with confession. And then the second step is repentance. Right? It's one thing to acknowledge that we have done wrong, but repentance is the next step where we make a change of attitude, a change of heart that will then bring about a change of action. It's the turning away and of leaving this thing behind us in the past. And so what does repentance and confession look like for us? Well, for one, in repentance, we pray and ask God for his strength every day. That we know that this is something that has to be put to death and it is a daily thing that we must do. And over time, as Jesus continues to transform and work on our hearts, it will become easier to do this as we abide with him. But we must pray and seek his strength each and every day. Another practical thing we can do is to surround ourselves with people who will walk with us through this. Chances are they're most likely there with you in this struggle too. And so we can confess and share with others around us about these struggles so that they can keep us accountable, so they can keep us supported, and that we can do the same with them, right? Like if we don't allow these things to stay hidden in the dark and we bring them into the light, there is power in that. And another thing we can do is we order our loves by centering our actions on reading and believing what Scripture says to lust and also to where our love should be, right? As we seek God through prayer and encounter Him through His Word, our hearts will change. He will transform our desires and our loves. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess and we seek Him, He will purify us and cleanse us. Um, Sean, if you would come up and just play some music for us as we get ready to enter into a time of response. Tonight's response is going to be a little bit different than what we often do. Um, and it's going to be a time for us to respond corporately or all together. Before we do that, I, I believe there are three groups of people in this room um, that I want to just speak to tonight as we prepare to respond. Those three groups of people are the tempted, the wanderer, and the brokenhearted. And so let me begin by speaking to the tempted. It's there waiting at the door and you can feel yourself being tempted to lust through your day-to-day -day interactions or online through pornography. You feel the words that it's okay, that it's not that big of a deal, and yet we know that lust reflects disordered love, and that it will never be satisfied and will simply blossom and grow through time to ultimately consume. It will objectify those around you and take them from being treasures and turn them into something to be consumed. Tonight is the night to seek the Lord for helping us make him the receiver of our love and our affections. 
So we're going to respond in prayer corporately. We're just all going to pray out loud, whether you find yourself in this group here tonight or not. I think it would just all be great to pray this together. So the scripture should be on the screen. It should be Lamentations 3. Yes. So would you pray with me out loud? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. Now to the wanderer, someone who didn't intend to walk down this path, but you are now down the path where lust really has a foothold in your life. You may be one of two people. You may be someone who has turned the glance into a gaze, and you now hold someone in your mind that you fantasize about. And it's beyond being attracted to them. It's the stories you've created in your mind and the things that, that you think you would sexually do with them. Or perhaps you've wandered down the path of pornography. Maybe it's occasional, maybe it's addictive, but it's there and no one knows about it. So to the wanderer, where love is disordered and needs to be right with God, there's no better time than right now to begin that process of reordering your love to the Lord. And so we're gonna take just a moment to be silent and be still before the Lord, that you may begin the process of confession and repentance before him right now. And so after that, I'll close us out in another prayer. But let's just take a moment to be still before the Lord that we can confess and begin the process of repentance with him. going to pray a prayer of scripture that speaks to the situation of the wanderer. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Amen. And finally, to those of you whose hearts have been broken by lust, you've walked so far down this path that you feel like there may be no way back. Maybe you've done things sexually that you regret or, or, or maybe just this lust has truly left a gaping wound in your soul. Tonight I want to tell you that no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, God is ready to welcome you back into his loving arms. He's already done all that is necessary to forgive you. You can't earn nor change that. And if you confess these things before him, all you need to do next is just to turn away and receive the forgiveness that Jesus has for you. And so once again, we're going to pray a scripture 
out loud together from Psalm 130. Would you pray with me? Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Amen. So what happens, Chi Alpha, when we choose to daily slay lust in our lives? I think one more quote by Jen Wilkins says it best. She says, in the world around us, we would see fellow humans created in the image of God in desperate need of a sustained gaze from us that restores their dignity rather than robs it. The sort of gaze with which Jesus looked upon those like the woman with an alabaster jar who had only known the lingering gaze of lust and its consequences. He gave her back what others had taken, full humanity. Chi Alpha, may we be people who bear the image of God and see the image of God in everyone else. May we be people who don't just try to manage our lust, but instead lean into the power and the presence of God to slay it. And may we walk in the freedom that Jesus has called us to.